Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Alyssa Rankin is a physician, mystic, and New York Times bestselling author of The Daily Flame, The Fear Cure, The Anatomy of a Calling, and one of my all-time favorite books, Mind Over Medicine. She's also the founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute and an instructor in the incredible Mind Body Green class, a six-step process for radical self-healing. Alyssa, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so fun to be here after all these years. It is so great to see you. You're old school, mind, body, green. We've known you for years, and it's been way too long. I remember you guys when you were like little toddlers. Little toddlers. Now we're teenagers. We're still... We're still growing, uh, yeah. but but it's so great to have you here. And in fact, you wrote one of my all-time favorite books, Mind Over Medicine, which I, if I had a nickel for every time I recommended that book, um, it is just, it had a, a huge impact uh, on me personally and a lot of people here at Mind Buddy Green. So let's start there and talk about I was going to say, I, I probably medicine. owe you because I probably have a nickel for every time you <laughs> recommended Mind Over Medicine. You definitely do. You probably have more than a nickel. But uh, here's to abundance. So talk a little bit about that book. Let's start there and how that happened. Yeah, well, it's... I wrote a whole other book, The Anatomy of a Calling, of actually how that happened because it's quite it was quite a big leap from, you know, growing up as the daughter of a very conventional physician, you know, scrubbing in on my first surgery before I had my first menses, and really kind of getting indoctrinated and, and into the conventional medical mindset at universities like Duke and Northwestern, sort of the traditional academic medicine route, and then practicing in San Diego for eight years as a conventional OBGYN until I kind of wrestled with what I now have language for. I didn't have the words for it at the time of what researchers are calling moral injury, the moral injury of practicing medicine in a way that I knew that I wasn't able to meet the needs of my patients. And it caused me not only to become sick and, you know, taking seven medications, but also suicidally depressed. And I was in my third trimester pregnant with my daughter when I kind of had my sort of breakdown of like, I can't keep doing this. So I ended up, it's a long story that I said, I wrote wrote a whole book about how that happened. And it was quite a mystical experience as well. But I wound up leaving the hospital in 2007 and spent two years in what Charles Eisenstein calls the space between stories, that time when kind of one story of my life as a doctor and my life in medicine was over. And the next story hadn't begun yet. And it was a very uncertain time, very scary time, because I was the full-time breadwinner and paying all the bills for the for my newborn and my husband. And, and I didn't know what else to do. I had spent 12 years becoming a doctor, and that was my life. And I had always felt called to medicine the way, you know, a priest is called to the priesthood. It was like a spiritual calling. So it took two years before I wound up starting my own practice in Marin County in Northern California. And this was a very different patient population that I had ever worked with. I had worked in the inner city of Chicago. I had worked with Somali refugees in San Diego, you know, people with real public health uh, crises. But 
in trying to recover from my moral injury and, and opening a practice where I was sort of outside of the system and, and spending a whole hour with patients, I ended up attracting, of course, sort of the Marin County elite, which, you know, these were some of the most different patients I'd ever worked with. They were all eating their raw vegan diet, <laughs> and they're working out with their personal trainer. They've had the best conventional medicine from UCSF and Stanford. They've seen their their acupuncturist and their naturopath. They're going to their yoga class. They're, you know, taking 100 supplements. And they were honestly some of the sickest people I've ever worked with in my entire life. And this was baffling to me. I would They'd come in with a chart, you know, four inches fat. And they're, they've got 10 diagnoses of sort of these mysterious illnesses and really suffering. And I felt helpless. I didn't know what to offer these people. They had already had all of the specialty lab tests. They'd already had everything that conventional medicine had to offer. And so I wound up just starting to ask people kind of penetrating questions. Things like, what does your body need in order to heal? Or what is your body saying no to? Or what would it take to live a life that your body would love? And people all started crying. Um, I mean, within minutes of the beginning of my hour with people, uh, these questions would penetrate something that opened up a lot of emotional unburdening. And what I found very quickly is that people had a, a quick answer. They knew. And they often didn't want to admit that they knew or maybe were even in denial of what they knew. But they would say things like, well, I've got to get out of my toxic marriage or... I've got to finally see a therapist and deal with my childhood sexual abuse. Or, you know, I've been suppressing my need to make art and it's time to finally go to art school. Or I've got to, you know, I'm caregiving my, my mother who was abusive my whole childhood. I need to just put her in a nursing home and let it go. Things like that. And, they, and yet then the next thing they'd say is, well, but I can't do that. So I started just getting curious, like, well, I wonder what would happen if you did do that. Your body just gave you kind of a healing prescription. And what if you actually did it? And about half of my patients would say, oh, no, no, there's no way I'm going to do that. But the other half, I'd say it was about 50-50, started doing really radical things and making really radical shifts in their life and kind of uprooting, literally sometimes it meant they're moving, they're changing relationships, they're kind of cleaning house in their relationship life, they're getting rid of toxic um, things in their in their home life, but also in their emotional life. They're unburdening these traumas from from childhood, doing all of this really deep work. And I was finding that people were starting to be free of their symptoms, sometimes very quickly, sometimes like literally by the next appointment, they, they'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm 50% better already. And I didn't understand what was happening at all. Um, this didn't fit. They didn't teach, <laughs> teach us this in medical school. They did not teach us this in medical school. And so I started kind of trying to understand it. I'm sort of, I have this sort of intellectual mind. And so I started researching spontaneous remissions. This was all that I had known from the kind of conventional medical literature was there's this thing called spontaneous remission where sometimes people with, for example, stage four cancers will suddenly sort of mysteriously their cancer goes away. And it's kind of treated as an anomaly in the medical community of sort of, well, I don't know what, uh, an I don't know factor. And I wanted to know, like, 
are they doing anything? Is there anything proactive? Like if you read these, you know, thousands of case studies that the Institute of Noetic Sciences put together for the Spontaneous Remission Project from the conventional medical literature, not a single one of them says, what did the patient do? So at, at that time, I met Kelly Turner, who was a grad student at UC Berkeley studying spontaneous remission in stage four cancer survivors, people who had been diagnosed with stage four cancer who either didn't have conventional medical treatment or had treatment that was deemed insufficient for cure. And Kelly and I were both doing our research at the same time. I just came from having breakfast with her in Manhattan, so it's lovely to like reconnect because we've known each other for almost a decade. And both of us were trying to sort of hack healing, like what happened here? And you know, she, she developed the work that became her book, Radical Remission, and I developed the work that became Mind Over Medicine, that was really trying to re- reverse engineer what was happening in my sessions with patients where, uh, you know, th- they were wrestling with these illnesses that nobody had been able to treat, but something in them, like I don't consider myself a healer. I was not healing them. They often would credit me because they'd seen so many other people. But for me, it was like, no, they knew exactly what was needed. And I was literally just holding a compassionate witness space and maybe asking a few good questions to develop this kind of inquiry. And they knew. They, I ended up you know, kind of reverse engineering it into what I called the six steps to healing yourself. But it was based on sort of them identifying what might be at the root cause of why they were vulnerable to this illness in the first place. Not that an illness might not be caused by a bacteria, for example, or that a cancer may not have taken them over, but we're all exposed to bacteria every day. We're all making cancer cells every day. Why does one person develop Lyme disease? Why does one person develop stage four cancer and another person doesn't? And so I started studying the physiology of self-healing, which is all kind of I have a nerd part, too. And for the nerds, all of the scientific data that's in the conventional medical literature is all sort of broken down in mind over medicine. I kind of wanted to gather together everything that we can prove based on what we know in conventional science. Uh, But part of what was, was tricky about mind over medicine is I kept bumping into the phenomenology of stories, anecdotes, which, and anecdotes are not science. Like, if you look at evidence-based science, anecdotes does not even fit into that category. They're just stories. But people kept telling me stories about spontaneous remissions, quote-unquote, right, that turned out to be not so spontaneous. And I was really curious about trying to piece together what was happening. So I'm now seven years into researching a book I haven't published yet called Sacred Medicine, which has taken me, good goodness, like so far down the rabbit hole of working with shamans in Peru and Qigong masters from China and Balinese healers and energy healers in the U.S. and biofield scientists and uh, gurus and spiritual leaders and healers. And I'm still kind of on that journey, but Mind Over Medicine specifically uh, was based on the data. It was like, this is evidence-based. This is what we can prove about how we can be proactive about about making our bodies ripe for miracles. Like, it's not just spontaneous. It's not an accident. There are actually very practical things that we can do. And there is a mystery that mm-hmm. I'm not sure the mystery fully wants to be hacked. 
<laughs> yeah, and I love the focus. We always say here, true wellness is a blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being. And I think what you really tapped into is the spiritual and emotional yeah. role, which is significant in well-being. And when you talk about science and being evidence-based, like I thought it was so interesting talking about nocebo and placebo. And some of the antidotes, I know they're just antidotes, but like so powerful. Could maybe just talk a little bit about nocebo, placebo, and share a couple of the antidotes? Sure. Well, placebo is basically a side effect of pharmaceutical trials. We kind of discovered it as evidence-based medicine was becoming a thing in the 1950s. Prior to that, we didn't really even have something called evidence-based medicine. But at some point, scientists decided we should try to be more proactive about proving that new treatments that come on the market are, are actually um, effective. And in order to do that, the model was, you know, the sort of gold standard of evidence-based medicine is a double-blinded, randomized, controlled clinical trial. And what that means is that both the, the patient and the researcher are blinded and don't know whether the patient is getting the new treatment or a placebo. So a placebo is a fake treatment. It's a sugar pill or a saline injection or even a fake surgery. And it turns out that, you know, the more sugar pills you take, the more effective it is. The uh, injections are more effective than sugar pills. Fake surgeries seem to be more effective than fake pills. And so, you know, things like, for example, we used to do it as standard treatment for coronary artery disease for chest pain from angina. There was a surgery called mammary artery ligation, where they would open up the chest and tie off the mammary arteries on the sort of the back of the rib cage. Uh, and the theory was that if you d took away that blood flow and it wasn't essential blood flow, then it would divert more blood to the coronary arteries, and it was highly effective treatment. And then they kind of did a uh, a study, a placebo study, to say, well, let's crack open some chests and not tie off the mammary arteries. And it turned out both of them got better over 80% of the time. Wow. So it started to really throw into question, well, what's working? Is it is it getting your chest cracked open with no intervention other than the cracking open of the chest? Uh, or, you know, in other words, we thought we had a mechanism for why that surgery was working. But based on evidence-based medicine, if something is no better than placebo, then it's not effective. Mm. And there was something wrong with that assumption, right? Because if more than 80% of people are getting better either way, something is working, but maybe it's not the thing that we think. So evidence-based medicine means we need to prove that it's better than placebo. But the placebo effect, as we've discovered, is anywhere between 18 and 80% of any trial. I'm, I won't even get into it now, but the cutting edge of my research now is kind of unraveling the whole theory of the placebo effect that I wrote about in Mind Over Medicine. So I We're going to have to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> because the, yeah, so the way I defined the placebo effect in Mind Over Medicine, I no longer fully agree with, which was a combination of positive belief and nurturing care. And something about going in with people with a white coat who have authority and agency, and they're saying, this is going to heal you, and you believing that this is going to heal you, and kind of being part of a community of, sci of science, maybe that's the, the effect. But now, now I have Well, also, theories. you mentioned the white coats. There are a couple things that really stuck out that are still with me with the book, is the way news is delivered by the physician. 
and talk about that, like how yeah. I'm delivering news about a potential catastrophic disease, whether it's cancer, heart disease, like, so important. Absolutely. Well, I, I now run a training program for doctors called the Whole Health Medicine Institute. We have about 40 faculty. And one of the things that we teach them is a good way to give bad news. So the nocebo effect is the opposite of the placebo. So placebo is, comes from the Latin that means I will please, and nocebo means I will harm. So the nocebo, for example, the classic nocebo would be voodoo, right? If I take a little doll and I stick pins in it and I say, Jason, this is you, and I'm now going to you know, kill you this way, <laughs> it, actually, it, it actually works a percentage of the time. You can actually kill people by sticking little pins in, in, a, in a voodoo doll, right? So in conventional medicine, unfortunately, I'm afraid we're doing the same thing. Uh, so if, if I come and I tell you, uh, Jason, you have pancreatic cancer. Based on the statistics, you have three months to live. You know, get your things in order. You've got about 90 days. That is not that different than voodoo, right? So I'm now giving you a death sentence. And if you trust me and you believe that, there's lots of... Uh, anecdotes and, and, and case reports in the literature of people who were given diagnoses like that, who died exactly when they were supposed to, and then had an autopsy that showed that, nope, they didn't, it was a misdiagnosis. So That's, we can... Sit with that for a minute. That's powerful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if I tell you that you have cancer, for example, but I've mixed up your slide with somebody else, and I give you the statistical uh, prognosis... And of course, this is this, when you think about it, this makes no sense. I am not looking at the statistics. I cannot possibly know your future. And maybe some people will say they're psychic and intuitive and they can read the energy of where you are right now and, and predict. But even that, even if you are into that realm, you're only reading the energy of that moment. And if you shift your energy or you make massive changes in your life, there's no way to predict what's going to happen three months from now. So to even begin to suggest that. So part of, but if we do that, right, something gets activated in your nervous system. And again, I nerd out on the physiology of this in Mind Over Medicine. If I tell you you've got three months to live, you can imagine that your nervous system is now firing stress response, right? Threat. You're now in survival mode. Your, your neurochemistry is now going to go into the fight or flight sympathetic nervous system, stress response, fill your body with cortisol and adrenaline, you're now going to deactivate all of your body's natural self-healing mechanisms, right, which only function when the nervous system is in the parasympathetic nervous system, the sort of rest and repair homeostatic state of the nervous system. So you can imagine that if the nervous system is firing stress response and you do have cancer, well, you're certainly not going to be able to start to work fighting off the cancer if the nervous system, based on your thoughts, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I've got to get my things in order, I'm dying. This is terrifying. But what I like to do, and part of how the good way to give bad news, is I have people, I, I tell the doctors, if you can find even one case study of a quote-unquote spontaneous remission from the difficult diagnosis that you're about to give a patient, then you interrupt the story, right? It's like, okay, and I, I don't even tell them to use statistics because you are not a statistic. You are an individual, and you're, the course of your disease is unknown. And if I can show you that at least one person with your quote-unquote incurable disease was cured, we don't, how? Well, we're not sure, but that could be you. 
That's a very, imagine what that does to your nervous system. And especially if I reach out and I hold your hand and I say, you know, Jason, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I want you to know we're going to go through this together. I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to offer you the best of what I have. I'm going to support you in following your intuition. I'm going to trust your own inner guidance system when it comes to making treatment decisions or not, um, looking outside of conventional medicine if that's what you're looking for. And I'm going to be a resource here to support you through this no matter what. Then your nervous system is going to be in a totally different state. And if I actually tell you that our goal is to get your nervous system in the relaxation response, in the parasympathetic nervous system, as much as possible. Uh, that's, that's the best thing that I can do as your co-journeyer uh, going into this situation. And, and for me, that's based on holding the space to trust what I call your inner pilot light, which is kind of the fundamental teaching of all of my work. It's like the one thing that runs through the thread of all of my work. Every religion has a different sure. name for this kind of inner knowing or the inner doctor, the inner therapist, the inner mentor uh, that will guide your unique individual journey. And so without... I don't want to give away the whole book. <laughs> it's such a great book. Everyone really needs to, I don't say this often. Everyone really needs to go buy it and read it. Uh, what are some of your favorite stories from the book? I, I have a couple, but I'll let you. Oh, from the in. book or, or since the from book? From Mind Over because Medicine. Well, we'll have you back since the book. But from the book. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I I love, I'll tell you one from my, my national public television uh, show that was about, called uh, Heal Yourself, um, Mind Over Medicine. And there was a, a, a guy who was a, an immigrant who was, uh, came to the United States and was doing construction work and hurt his back and went to the doctor. He was uh, diagnosed with an incurable kind of lung cancer and was basically told that he was going to have to you know, go through this treatment, but it would, be in, it would be just palliative treatment. He wouldn't be able to survive this cancer. And he was a Greek immigrant, and he and his wife had kind of started their family here. And so he decided, after looking at their finances and whatever, that instead of going through this whole route of palliative treatment that was not going to be curative anyway, he might as well save the money and go back to Ikaria, the little town in Greece, the little island in Greece where he had grown up. So he and his wife moved back, and they moved in with his parents. And he started going back, you know, sort of hanging out with his old friends. They all heard that, that he was dying. And so his friends started coming to visit him and playing checkers. And they'd sit around and have a glass of wine. And, you know, he was told he had about three months to live. So he thought, well, I'll start planting a garden. At least then when I'm dead, my wife will be able to harvest the vegetables. I won't be around to harvest them, but it, it'll maybe give her some hope. And so he, he planted the the vegetables and he started going back to the church where he used to go it was kind of hilly where he was so he'd have to kind of climb up the hills to go to the church but and he, would, he had lung cancer so it was a bit hard to breathe sort of climbing up the hills to go to the church but he was able to do that and you know three months came and went and the vegetables were starting to grow and he hadn't died yet so he uh, he decided to sort of renovate the vineyard in his parents' property. Like, maybe I'll grow a few grapes, and maybe someday my wife will be able to drink this wine. After I'm dead, they'll be able to, like, have a toast at my funeral or something. So he he's working on the, the vineyards. And, and 
during this time, again, the community is sort of coming to support him and, hope, you know, hoping to make this an easeful transition for him. And, and lo and behold, the first grape harvest comes, and he's able to make his first bottles of wine. And, and anyway, this goes on and on. And 25 years later... He's built like an entire state. <laughs> <and then. laughs> right. 25 years later, he decides he's going to go back to the U.S. and find those doctors to be like, wait a minute, what happened? And all of his doctors were dead. I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And he ended up dying. I think, it, depending on, there's some question, his name was Stomatis Maritis. There's some question over whether he died at 98 or like 102, depending on the birth records. Wow. But some 50 years after his original diagnosis. So, so what happened? What happened to Stomatis? And, you know, Icaria is actually one of the blue zones. There are these mm-hmm. places in the world where people seem to have an unusual number of centenarians, people who live uh, without disability and without illness, to be over 100, to sort of die in their sleep. And so Icaria happens to be one of those communities. And when you look at those blue zones, they have, they have you know, things in common. And I think that's part of what we can be proactive about. We can be proactive about trying to develop things like the community that was surrounding him, that Stomatis wasn't lonely. He was surrounded by all of his loved ones. He was involved in a spiritual community and participating in his in his church and the festivals of his mm-hmm. church and living off of the land, planting his own garden, exercising. There's not a lot of roads. He's like walking up the hills going, going where he goes, right? And uh, there's no watches. You're not living by a schedule. It's kind of, let's have lunch. Like, lunch is whenever you both get there. And you can imagine that that kind of environment would be an environment that would be more relaxing to the nervous system, that the body's capacity to heal itself would be optimized in a situation like that. And so I would say, you know, what what healed Stomatis? Well, his inner pilot light said, go home. And that was the most important prescription that he got in that moment. And maybe he wasn't thinking it was a healing prescription. But he did what his body needed. And what I find is that when we sort of get the mind aside and we let the knowing guide the way, often people will do things that seem completely irrational at the time. Uh, like I love, there's another story about Andy Mackey who was, had had multiple heart attacks and was very disabled from his heart disease, was taking like a dozen um, you know, very toxic heart medications. I was told that he would die, you know, within months if he quit his heart medications, but they were causing all these horrible side effects. And so he decided, finally, you know, I'd rather die. Like, I'm going to just stop all these horrible medications and get my affairs in order. And so he stopped his medication, and he decided, you know what, I'm going to do this one thing I've always wanted to do. And he decided to take the money that he had been spending on all of his medicines and invest it in buying harmonicas so that he could take it to the public schools and teach harmonica lessons to the inner city kids. And so he did that the first month, and lo and behold, he was still alive a month later, so he took the same amount of money and bought more harmonicas, and I forget the numbers, but it's something like, you know, 13 years and 30,000 harmonicas later or something. (laughs) So I love these stories uh, of people who are, in that case, fulfilling a calling, like really finding something to love and putting their whole heart into, again, creating a life that their body will love. Sure. So my... Yeah, and I hate... I also want to bring up, I hate to be the Debbie Downer in the book, one of the most (laughs) powerful stories is not 
an uplifting one. And to me, it speaks about PTSD, trauma, um, deep hurt that is just very hard to overcome. And I think there are a lot of people struggling. And it's, the, it's I think it's the village. It was it Cambodia or Thailand. And just, was, can you just tell that story? Because to me, it's it obviously it was a hugely traumatic event for people, but speaks to the, the power of, you know, having to deal with really bad shit and why that's so important to one's own well-being. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, let me generalize that because a lot of what I've been studying in the past seven years is the link between trauma and illness. And we have so much data. I mean, this this is evidence-based. We have lots of data looking at the adverse childhood events, for example, what the scientists call the ACEs, looking at, you know, the major traumas, childhood sexual abuse, abandonment by a parent, growing up in a household with addiction, parents in jail, divorce, these kinds of, of traumas. And then there's even more now we have more data things like mark epstein the buddhist psychiatrist who wrote the trauma of everyday life all of us are traumatized and so i think when we start looking at you know the bigger picture of be are are we willing to go into the depths of our pain in order to make the body ripe for miracles and a lot of people are not ready and or they don't have the resources or it's not even available for them. So we do have these kind of generational woundings of kind of illnesses that are passed down through the Holocaust or, or in Cambodia or in these indigenous villages that have just been slaughtered, right? The Rwanda genocide and things like that. Those kinds of traumas, uh, if we don't do the intense work that's necessary to clear those traumas. And I do want to say trauma is curable. We didn't used to think that trauma was curable. We used to think, for example, return war veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, that these were people that were essentially damaged goods, sort of broken spirits. And we could maybe use things like cognitive behavioral therapy to kind of give them some tools to be able to navigate everyday life. But we knew from the data, for example, that those people were at significantly higher risk of every disease and of early death. And that there wasn't a whole lot we could do about that other than sort of improving their everyday functioning. But we now know in the realm of things like energy psychology, I'm a big fan of uh, both Asha Clinton's Advanced Integrative Therapy, AIT, and Richard Schwartz's Internal Family Systems, IFS. These are both two trauma healing modalities that have been proven to heal almost everything in the DSM. And as a side effect, people that are doing that work are having, quote unquote, spontaneous remissions. That's what caught my attention. So that's really like what I'm super excited about now is what's possible when we actually cure the traumas of everyday life or the ACEs. I'm, I'm in weekly trauma therapy at this point. Like, liter- My mother died last year, so it kind of opened up all the things that maybe I was too afraid to go into while my parents were both alive and now both of my parents are dead. And so sort of I, I feel even a bit, um, yeah, I, feel, I feel a bit disloyal Going and doing that work because it actually means facing the ways in which my parents weren't great parents. Sure. Because there were lots of ways in which they were great parents. 
But I also see that the work that I'm doing in weekly therapy is preventive medicine. I am potentially preventing my own illness. And I'm, I'm off all of the drugs for a decade now. I'm off all the drugs that I was on in my 30s. But I also want to make sure that I'm not carrying these stuck energies in, in my cellular makeup, uh, in my in my storing it in my body, because I know that that could predispose me to all kinds of things as I get older. I'm I'm going to be 50 in a few weeks, so it starts wow. to become really relevant. You know? Happy birthday! <laughs> Thank you. So you describe yourself as a physician and a mystic. Those are two you don't often see together in a description. So what exactly does that mean? Oh well, I mean, if you look back at you know Hippocrates and these sorts of ancient physicians, there was no separation between the physician and the mystic. Uh, the, the, the doctor was the healer, was the shaman, was the sort of spiritual guide of the community. And those things have, have become so separated. I know as part of my sacred medicine research, for example, I've been studying the mind-body medicine doctors, the trauma healing therapists, the biofield scientists, the, the spiritual leaders and gurus, the sort of mystical energy healers, and none of these disciplines are talking to each other. They've been very fragmented. So to me, mysticism is about the esoteric branches of every religion. Like if you start looking at things like mystical Christianity or Kabbalah in Judaism or Sufism in Islam, uh, they, the teachings start to, you know, t the Tantra teachings of, of Hinduism, for example, or Buddhism, uh, the teachings start to overlap, and they start to look like something close to universal truth. And part of what I've been learning about healing is that you can't study healing without bumping into the mystical. And it looks like magic. It looks like... I mean, look, I've, I've since experienced and witnessed both personally and observing things that look uh, like they violate the laws of science, which is very uncomfortable <laughs> for a scientist, but also pretty exciting because it means perhaps that the world is far more mysterious than we, than we might know. And there, there are things that I'm discovering in the realm of spiritual power and how it overlaps with the heart, with which is another kind of spiritual power, right? There's, there's a whole realm of spiritual power unrelated to the heart, which we could call black magic. Um, but in what one of my teachers calls white magic, this is the realm where potentially we can use the principles of mysticism to potentially influence uh, the, the physical body, the physical world, sort of what we might call consensus reality in a way that looks, yeah, looks like a miracle. What's an example? Do you have an example of that? <laughs> uh, well, so, for example, one of the people that I've interviewed for my sacred medicine book, uh, he's a Swami in the Kashmir Shaivism tradition. And so he does remote healing work with people that have that are pretty desperate. They're, they've maxed out everything that conventional medicine can offer. They've failed every other sort of treatment. And so they're, they're coming to him with, you know, incurable cancers or, or horrible chronic pain disorders and things like this. And so he is using his kind of meditation practice to merge his consciousness with the consciousness of the person that he's working with 
to kind of become one with the sick person with their consent and with their soul's consent because he says sometimes the soul is checking out and it's you can't override that choice of the soul to check out but if the human gives the consent and the soul gives the consent he can become them and train them into the vibration that he carries this sort of transmission of of this energetic frequency that he carries to almost um, overlay the blueprint of the optimal blueprint of how that individual's body is supposed to be using a kind of sacred geometry to uh, repair and he uses the language of like computer like codes he's transmitting codes and entraining this vibration into a coding that looks like an almost spontaneous cure that's relatively interesting. To it's me. interesting. It's very heavy, but it's, it's definitely the, not in the medical books. No, and I, like I said, I, ha, I the reason I haven't sold my sacred medicine book is I don't even know how to write about that. Right. I don't know how you do either. Yeah. It, it's it's well to me. It, what's so interesting, like you said it, you said okay, medicine, it's science based. There are laws. Laws are very black and white. There's right and wrong. And I think what you're talking about in a lot of ways is embracing. And I think most of medicine embraces the black and white. It's either yes or no, wrong or right, but there, there's gray. And embracing the gray, embracing the unknown, I think that's just in some ways diametrically opposed to what medicine, what you're, what you're taught to. It's like, and I think that's tough yeah. for people who practice medicine. It's Like I said, it's very uncomfortable for yeah. me. I, was just, I just spent last week with uh, another guy that I've been studying, William Bankston, who wrote a book called The Energy Cure, and he's spent 30 years doing hands-on healing laboratory research on cancerous mice uh, using this mental cycling technique that's basically like a rapid cycling, like wish fulfillment imagery technique, and it's curing cancer in mice. This is, again, reasonably interesting. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's essentially another kind of perhaps vibrational frequency or meditation technique that, as a side effect, is anecdotally curing pancreatic cancer in humans. What? I mean, we don't really know what to do with pancreatic cancer in conventional medicine. So this has not been scientifically studied on humans with by Bill yet. He's he calls himself a rodent fondler because he can control he can control the conditions for the mice, right? He can say it's the same genetic strain, they have the same cancer, they're in the same cage, they're getting the same food, they're sur- they're inv- exposed to the same environmental conditions, but with humans, it becomes very hard to prove these things because if somebody has stage four cancer, they might be getting treatment from one of Bill Bankston's students, but they're also drinking their green juice and going to, you know, Lourdes to have their miracle cure from the sacred site or they're, you know, getting chemotherapy or radiation or all these other things. So how do you say what's actually working? And I think we actually have to take that backwards to say maybe even some of the things that we think are working in conventional medicine are working for reasons that are different than what we think they are, similar to the mammary artery ligation situation. Right. Yeah. And... Yeah. No, I wonder <laughs> the same thing with science. It's, well, I also, you hit the nail on the head. You don't really know what exactly. So we talk about blue zones a lot. It's like, what specifically is working? Is it 
walking up hills? Is it the deep emotional connection? Mm -hmm. Or is it the wine? Or is it it the plants? Or is it all all of the above? Or all the above. Or maybe it's this other thing we're not thinking about. Unless you like, maybe it's the land itself, right? I mean, maybe this is where I'm really curious. I went to Lourdes last year, like, very interested in these places, these sacred sites where people go on pilgrimage for healing. And I was so touched. I'm not Catholic, but I was so touched going to Lourdes, just watching these thousands of pilgrims who come planes, trains, and automobiles, and these volunteers pick them up in wheelchairs at the train station and push them over to the grotto where they touch the walls that, you know, that the, that where the saints and Mother Mary sure. were alleged to have been, and they he- bathe in these healing waters, and then they do this procession every night. I'm just bawling my eyes out with the huge number of people that have all gathered together on this one sacred piece of, of land with this, you know, where this this miracle supposedly happened, all of them with the intention of healing. And part of what Bill Bankston is studying in, with his mice is he has a theory that maybe the placebo effect is not about positive belief and nurturing care, but it's about resonant bonding, mm. that maybe there's something that bonds the people that go to Lourdes, that we all are in our sort of heart space. We're all in our vulnerability. We're all coming with that humility to sort of say, I can't do this by myself. I have failed to heal myself. Like, let this divine energy or whatever support me. But maybe it's the the combination of the place, the beauty, the water, the the volunteers that are there to support the sick people, the gathering of thousands of people doing a mass together. I was super touched, and I thought, like, I'm very interested in the concept of group healing. So you mentioned group healing and people flocking somewhere. I couldn't help but think of John of God, and I know you've talked about yes. that. Is the message there is, you know, always important to remember that humans are humans and they're flawed? Well, I was supposed to go to John of God as part of this research in July. And I know. of course, I now he's, you know, been... Not doing so his... well in the news. It's, it's, no. it's sad. It's terrible. Well, I think one of the... I almost quit doing the sacred medicine research because uh, the first three years was all about the shadow. And I basically concluded, first of all, I didn't used to believe that there was such a thing as spiritual power. Uh, I... I now believe there is such a thing as spiritual power. And like I said, disconnected from the heart, it can cause all manner of harm. And so I came to the conclusion that just because someone has spiritual power does not mean they have spiritual ethic or moral development or psychological health. And I think we, I personally, I think I was very naive and idealistic. And I thought, well, if John of God can cure cancer, then he must be enlightened, right? No, no, no. These are separate things. I think healing, I think some people have the power to facilitate at least temporary healing in other people. Uh, And I also would say if they're not addressing and treating the root cause of what put that person, made them vulnerable to the illness in the first place, my theory is it won't be permanent, that that it will be recurrent or it'll look like a brand new illness. Like my, my father, for example had multiple sclerosis, and then he was diagnosed with pancreatic, or or sorry, with prostate cancer. They cured his prostate cancer in April, and he was diagnosed with metastatic melanoma in October of the same year. Like, I think sometimes we can keep running after treating the next thing, but if 
if the real reason is that my father has a trauma, that he had a huge trauma growing up in Cuba and, and the whole thing that happened with Castro. I if didn't that's, know your father. I didn't know that. My, my father's parents were missionaries. I did not know that. Yeah, so he had to leave everything over in the middle of the night, in the middle of the revolution, leave his girlfriend and wow. and run away and got sent to a, a boarding school in New York and separated from his family. And he could never talk about it. He couldn't talk about Cuba without bursting into tears. So if that vibration is running in his nervous system, then my theory is he could go to John of God, he can have some hands-on healer, or he can get radiation and chemo. If we don't also treat that, we're not going to set him up to have a long life. And he died well, young. And ultimately, too, it's important to, I think when people are hurting, they're suffering, there's a need inherently to just look for answers and look to other people. And yeah. I think ultimately, so much, the, which is so much of your message, the, the power also lies within you. And yeah. it doesn't matter if this person is the second coming of Christ or whatever you believe in. Or Christ. So, or, or Christ himself or whatever <laughs> yeah. religion. I mean, Christ system, was doing, was doing you, healings. You need to... The power does lie within you to some degree. Well, I, well, the way I think about it now, and I, again, I haven't even said this publicly anywhere or, or published it anywhere, but I think when we think about, if we look at ancient healing traditions, you know, like Ayurveda or Chinese medicine, they talk about things like chi or prana, this kind of life force energy that is a, a kind of spiritual energy that animates us, right? I, I, I call it your inner pilot light. Like yes. It's the same We're thing. We're segueing to that, yeah. yes. It's the same thing. But I think sometimes that, that life force becomes so dim, that's like an inner, an inner thing, right? It's like your energy system, your biofield, to use the, what the scientists are calling it. That's the, the sort of frequency of your biofield. If your biofield frequency becomes kind of dim, like if that light becomes dim, you may need somebody else to give you external Sure. Chi, jump prana, start. jump start. It's almost like you're getting a boost, uh, a transfusion, just like you're going in to get a blood transfusion, yep. right? But if we're not treating, why am I losing blood, right? So we can come in and maybe we can give treatment. Treat a symptom and not the root cause. Right. Yeah. So that's how I start to think of it now. Ideally, any good healer is only giving you a boost so that your inner system can regulate itself and that life force can move and so that's specifically what I'm interested in, is how do we boost that inner So energy. how do you do that? Segwaying to your latest book, The yeah. Daily Flame. So like, how do you give yourself that boost? How do you make sure the light is shining and bright versus dim? Well, I, th I think that's the, that's the million-dollar question. I... I was one of those people whose lights had gotten really dim when I was 35 and taking seven medications and pregnant with my daughter and suicidal. So I know what it feels like to feel that dead, you know, that close to that close to checking out. And you know, the the simple answer is I would say every esoteric branch of every religion teaches practices that are intended, they're spiritual practices that are intended to keep that light a flame, right? Whether it's meditation or contemplative prayer or in the sort of feminine spiritual traditions, things that are more in the realm of movement or dance or, uh, you know, doing ceremony for the full moon and, and some of these pagan traditions and things like this, right? Every, every tradition has its own way of doing this. And I would add community, 
we're not meant to do these things alone. We're meant to do them in community. Um, but I also think it's really important to talk about what dims the light, right? Because it's trauma that dims the light. So it's twofold. There are things that we can do to sort of boost the light. And if we're, n- if we're still veiled because of all the trauma that hasn't been cleared, then we're, it's kind of one foot on the gas and one foot on the brakes. So a lot of what I'm teaching in the the book, The Daily Flame, which is based on an e- a free email, email I've been sending out for 10 years. In fact, my 50th anniversary is also the 10-year anniversary of The Daily Flame email. It's it's based on all these different practices. And I have, it's funny because I've never really... I've never really taught about what I do. And I have about 30 different practices that I use for myself to keep that light aflame. And that light is what saved my life. It was the voice that said, sweetheart, you're going to have to quit your job back in 2005. And that voice has been sort of guiding me ever since, kind of instructing me on how to keep that light aflame. So I think it's quite individual. Like your the way that's going to work for you is not necessarily going to look anything like the way that works for me. For you, it might be, you know, going on 21-day vipassanas and sitting. For me, that is not the way my inner pilot light. Uh, It's not for me either. I'm much happier in (laughs) ecstatic dance and out in nature doing ceremonies and rituals, sort of using my own shamanic uh, offering practices and stuff. in the redwood forest. So I know it's hard to generalize, but what are, I would say, you know, in the same way I, I would make the generalization that, you know, vegetables are probably good for everyone. Yeah. Sugar, not so good. Sure. Like what are those generalizations you can make with regards to living a you know healthy, happy, spiritually fulfilled, abundant life? Like what are those? Well, I would tell you, I'll tell you one of the practices that I learned from Tosha Silver that is a fundamental practice that I use probably 10 times a day because it's a simple practice and I forget 10 times a day. So the practice is really in the remembering. And it's a practice of spiritual surrender. So you read Mind Over Medicine. You know, step six is surrender attachment to outcomes, surrender to the universe, like let go of thinking that you can heal yourself even. And I now teach step six as step one because I really think like, that's a, a fundamental shift. So when I'm teaching the doctors in the whole health medicine institute, Louise, hey, we're alive. We would have a debate right now. <laughs> yeah, but I really, I mean, we live in a self-help culture where we want to believe we can control the outcome, and I like thinking that I can control the outcome. It's the part that's we made all me, do. <laughs> sure, I mean, it's the part that writes books, right? Sure. I I want to be able to hack healing so that I can say, here's how to cure your cancer, right? Of course, this is why I went to medical school. I wanted to control life or death, and I I now have a very different orientation towards life. I I think I participate. It's a paradox, right? I participate in the creation of my reality. I. Uh, have influence, I have power, I have spiritual power, I can quote-unquote manifest certain things, right? And there are other things I can't manifest, like I can't manifest being 20 again, but I can manifest this book, right? I had an idea and I made it happen. So there are things that we can make happen, and then there are things that we really can't make happen, like pregnancy. I'll tell you, as an OBGYN working with powerful women who had been able to make stuff happen their whole life, the minute they realize they can't control whether or not they get pregnant, they have a meltdown. It is a crisis 
uh, and they'll try every in vitro fertilization or sure. whatever, and when it all fails and they fundamentally realize they're not in control, it can be a kind of dark night of the soul. But the practice that I use now primarily is that the minute I notice I'm my mind is trying to either get something I want or avoid something I don't want or solve a problem or decide a decision and try to control life, then I have a practice of intentionally kind of putting it in the hands of my inner pilot light, of like casting this burden into a, a force of love, whatever you want to call it, like a god, goddess, a redwood tree, uh, an angel, whatever whatever is your sort of sure. orientation, to trust that there is an actual kind of organizing intelligence of the universe that's far wiser, far more mysterious, and very proactive. So it's not a passive kind of surrender. It's not like, I'm going to give up. I'm going to go to the couch and take a nap and eat it. Well, you might. <laughs> your inner pilot light might but, but tell you're, you. But you're, but you're saying, I'm going to let go. It's time for me to let go. You're consciously, there's a difference. Yes. Consciously making a decision to let go versus giving up. I mean, I, I went to the Hay House I Can Do It conference once, and I said, okay, I'm going to be the one person that gets on stage and says, I can't do it. <laughs> I'm going to give you the I can't do it workshop. But really, it's I can't do it alone. There's a kind of humility. Like, if I think I can control life and I can manifest whatever I want, whether it's cure or a book or attracting the love of my life or whatever, if I think I have the power and I can do it myself... There's a kind of arrogance in, in that that will sell a lot of books Yes. if you can promise somebody that. I don't believe that that's true. I believe it's part of the, the paradox. It's one hand, and it's also true that we can't control. We're not in control. Sure. And so acknowledging the humility of my, my primary desire is to surrender to the flow of life, that sort of chi and prana that runs in our body also runs in in the universe it runs in our our the whole of our reality and if i ally with that and i make myself available to be a vessel to that and i i want that more than i want whatever i'm attaching to thinking that i want then i can't tell you how many mysterious and miraculous things have happened when i let go and it's not meant to be a way to a tricky law of attraction practice in order to get what you want, but for example, one of the one of the doctors that that took our whole health medicine institute, we do at the very beginning in their first retreat, we do a God box ceremony where they write down every unmet longing, every unsolved problem, every undecided decision, and we have this ceremonial letting go and, and burning these things, and. Again, it's not passive. It's trusting that if something, if we're meant to do something, comes from a different place. It's not mental. We're not thinking it up. It's dropping in as a kind of guidance that you can learn how to feel. And that's really what kind of connecting to your inner pilot light and living a life led by that will do. And so that woman put in the God box, she had been trying to get pregnant for like a decade. She put it in the God box and went home and promptly got pregnant. So it's... I, can't, I have thousands of stories like sure. that as well. So in this age of personalization where there's more and more science coming in every day, 
you know, we've got DNA, we've got the microbiome, telomeres, blood testing. It's just really exciting. And you, as you mentioned, you know, people want answers. They want hacking. It's solutions. Tell me what to do. I'm going to do it in Silicon Valley. They're trying to figure out how we're going to live to 200. And they're in, also in trying to hack meditation right. so I can like make it an exactly. app. Exactly. <laughs> so how, and, and a lot of that stuff is interesting sure. and really exciting. I love the science, but on that, how do you, how do we on the flip side, learn to love uncertainty because mm. to me whether, whether it's you know we're talking about purpose faith spirituality there is a huge element of uncertainty how do we learn to love that because it seems to me that's a critical part of the health and well-being equation well that's really what my book the fear care was all about yes uh, the, the fear <laughs> care is really it's kind of a misnomer because it's not about curing fear it's about letting fear cure you it's really about coming into right relationship with uncertainty. Because fear is just, uh, to use internal family systems language, it's just a protector part. It's just a part that thinks that it's helping you. And you, if we ally with it, if we befriend it, and let us show, let it show us where we were hurt or what might be making us protect. And if we go back and heal the hurt part, then you know, again, we have more access to this inner pilot light that, that is a compass that will protect us far more powerfully than our fear. So in the fear cure, I talk about sort of the five, the five phases of going from fear to faith or fear to trust, if you want to use something less sort of religious, because the, the trust in the uncertain is a journey, right? In the beginning, we think we, we're, af we're afraid of anything uncertain. It's hostile. And we want to avoid uncertainty at all costs. And there's kind of a transformation that happens as people travel the spiritual path where we become more, in the beginning, we become more neutral. We become more curious about uncertainty, less resistant to it. And then at some point, we can actually become seduced by it. This can actually be a reckless phase mm -hmm. where you actually may even resist something that feels certain and just, you know, sort of tumble headlong into uncertainty because... Uh, yeah, it's sort of thrill-seeking. But ultimately, on the, on the fifth side of that, there's, a, there's an understanding that uncertainty is simply the gateway to possibility, right? If, so if I'm giving you a diagnosis uh, that might sound like a scary diagnosis, but I'm also giving you a transmission of uncertainty, of we don't know what your outcome will be. You could be the next miracle cure. You're the next person that the doctors are going to write up in the medical journal. Because when we don't know what the future holds and we're willing to sort of surrender to that flow, anything could happen, right? So I don't want to know my future, frankly, because first of all, if somebody had told me I'd be doing what I'm doing now when I quit my job in 2007, I'd have been terrified. I'm super introverted. I don't like being in, in the public eye. I'm, you know, it's very hard for me to kind of do my public work. So... I might have sabotaged the whole thing if I had known the future of, you know, writing seven books and four TED Talks and two public television specials and things like that. It would be super scary to me. But I think at some point when you make it a practice to start surrendering to that flow and just getting curious about what's going to happen and you discover that those moments of uncertainty when we let go of trying to control everything or letting go of the illusion of certainty, of course, because it's all it's all uncertain. I mean, I might walk out of this door right now and get hit by a car right outside, and I have no. <laughs> cancel, cancel. No, no, no. 
Right. I mean, we really don't know. Like, I think that I'm going to do an event tonight uh, at the New York Open Center, but maybe not. So we like to think that that sense of certainty gives us kind of grind, grounding and stability. And we need that. We need that grounding and stability. But when we're able to unroot just enough to keep the ground, but also allow the flow in paradox, then uncertainty can actually become quite, yeah, we can become quite enamored with the mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just had some, just this week, some things that I thought I was, you know, letting go because I couldn't make it happen. And it's now happening in a way that is far grander. This is the thing. Uh, my mind couldn't possibly make up what the universe has in store for me. And every time, either I surrender it and it happens far better than I could have want, made it happen, or I quit wanting it, right? Like the longing goes away, and I realize, oh, that actually wasn't my, my journey, because what I really want is to be in that flow. I think it's so hard for type A's. It's who, super hard you're, for type you're, A's. You, you set a goal, you work your ass off, you get it done. Right. So it's this tension of, of working hard. I and, teach and doctors. Trying to let it go, that's tough. There is nobody more type A than doctors, because we, I, I honestly think that many of us go to medical school because of childhood traumas that make us want to control life and death. <laughs> Seriously. I know I did. Is that the biggest problem with Western medicine? <laughs> I was going to ask you that question, but I'm sorry for your thought. No, seriously, though. There is that I I have a part. It's just a part. It's not all of me. But I have a part that wants to, that, that's spent the past 10 years, well, the first 12 years of my medical education, my first 20 years in Western medicine, trying to use Western medicine to control life and death. And now I've spent the past 10 years trying to figure out how to unpack sort of psycho-spiritual underpinnings of healing and energy medicine and shamanism and the biofield and all of that. So that part wants to figure it out so that I can say, here you go, I have decoded it, and now you can control your health and well-being. I love that I have a part that wants to do that, but I also continuously keep coming into the reality that if I could do that, let's say it worked. Let's say my sacred medicine book is going to have the secret code, and it will cure every cancer and get rid of every chronic illness. Number one New York Times bestseller already. (laughs) And of course, this is why I haven't sold the book. It's not going to be that book. It's not going to be that book. Because first of all, I think... We're not meant to be that arrogant. We're not meant to, to, like, part of what we're learning right now is the whole story that technology is going to solve all of our problems and that if there's a problem, all we need is better and better technology. We're looking at how people are, how climate scientists are looking at climate change, for example. And the story is, well, science just needs to get better and better so that we can you know, heal what's happening to our planet. But technology is not the solution. It's part of the solution. This is, I'm not anti-technology. I'm absolutely like, people sometimes misinterpret my work and think that I'm against conventional medicine. And my ex-husband cut two fingers off his left hand with a table saw. And thank God for Dr. Jonathan Jones, the microsurgeon that spent 10 hours in surgery putting those fingers back on. So far, I've never met an energy healer that has demonstrated the ability to do that. (laughs) I don't, you know, it certainly was the result of a trauma, but not an emotional trauma necessarily. So uh, yes, technology is amazing. This is great. 
But the whole story that we can use technology, and this goes back to the question you were asking about personalization and DNA and all of that, what, what is the story of the world that we tell ourselves about humans being able to use technology to control nature, including our own nature, or the natural world of, of Mother, Mother Earth? We are not the lords and masters of the entire universe. Like We are actually animals who are vulnerable to the same forces that all of the other plants and animals and sentient life on Earth and in the cosmos is vulnerable to. And I think we're actually meant, like the uncertainty is there to make us feel vulnerable. We're supposed to feel vulnerable. Our vulnerability is what evokes our humility. And our humility is what ultimately often uh, guides people to the spiritual path. Most people start the spiritual path on their knees in the bathroom. Just no, look at me and, and Liz right? Gilbert. <laughs> right. right, like that is where, when we are on our knees, I mean, this is why like in 12-step, for example, step one is you're sure. not in control. You yep. can't control this. And I think step one of any transformational journey is you have failed to control this. If you could control this, you would have. I love that. So I know you don't like talking about the future, but what what do you think the future holds? <laughs> what is where do you what's exciting to you with regards to new research, science, studies? Uh, what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now in wellness? Well, I can tell you what I'm super excited about. This is part of that miracle that I was just talking about that's just happened in the past few weeks. I was just teaching with Gabor Mate and Adi Ashanti at 1440 Multiverse Multiversity. And some really amazing things happened in the flow of something that I had really put in the God box. I have a vision, and we were just talking about 12-step. Imagine 12-step for people who are sick, injured, or traumatized. Ooh, I love that. Something Because I'm really interested in public health. Right now, the kinds of healing that I'm studying is a luxury good. Right. If you can afford to pay a trauma therapist $200 an hour or you can afford to get on the wait list for this swami that does remote energy healings and pay $300 an hour or if you can afford to go to 1440 and work with me and Gabor and Adi Ashanti. But that's expensive. That's very expensive and it's not covered by insurance. And so I'm really interested in the public health dynamics of this. And several of the doctors that have come through my program are public health doctors, and they're making big shifts in public health in Canada and New Zealand. But in the U.S., it's harder because we don't have, you know, we don't have socialized medicine here. So I'm really interested in creating a low-cost, widely available ability to do to to do this kind of psycho-spiritual or energy healing work in community. Available all over the world, like in, in Marin County at least, you can go to a 12-step meeting every hour of the day. <laughs> there is community and a structure, and it you don't have to have it, – it's by donation. It's like, what, $5 donation sure. or something? And the group leaders are actually people that have gone through the 12 steps, completed their transformation, and as part of their ongoing recovery, are leading the group. Imagine if sick people were doing the same thing. Somebody is on a cancer journey. They go through maybe the six steps in Mind Over Medicine, or, or we. My, my bigger vision is to actually get all the people I've been interviewing for 10 years, all of the 40 faculty members from the Whole Health Medicine Institute, together at Esalen, to create a structure that's as watertight as 12-step and 
as teachable so that anybody could host, uh, I'm calling it the Healing Soul It would be a great documentary if you track them. I'm I'm starting it already. I have an online program called called the Healing Soul Tribe where we're just doing it virtually and we're training group leaders who are actually doing this. And I'm trying to give them a structure, but I would love the support of these other people so that it was really a collaborative process to develop an, a watertight structure that can hold the container for this level of healing in a safe way where we're not actually re-traumatizing people, but we're able to bring together kind of what Bill Bankston's talking about, the resonant bonding, maybe the Lord's concept, to bring groups together with the intention of healing to open the healing field and move this kind of life force collectively in a way that's cheap, easily available, um, reproducible all over the world. I love that. That's my, and imagine just having it in hospitals. Like a healing soul tribe is now available at 10 o'clock in the Lido deck, you know? (laughs) Uh, It's in community centers, it's in churches, it's in people's homes. And I get super excited, like when I feel into the energy of that, I, feel, I have a part that's scared because I know, for example, trauma healing work uh, needs a very tight container. And we've seen over and over what happens when people don't have the mastery and the expertise to know how to work with trauma. And you can re-traumatize people. Right. So I have a scared part that's afraid that's not possible. But again, it's not possible. If I think it's not possible, put it in the God box, Right. right? And if it's, me- if it's in the flow for that to come, I, I guarantee you, Jason... I will be shown how to do this, or somebody else will be shown. Somebody will be listening and say, oh, my God, that's my, that's my calling. I'm going to pick up the – anybody who's listening, feel free to create this yourself because I'm not in any way attached to it being my thing. I just want to see it happen. So I, part of the miraculous thing was that I, uh, I just met somebody who is trying to figure out what to do with all of her money. <laughs> And said, hey, what would you what do? What a great problem. <laughs> what would you do? What would your vision do? If you had all the money in the world to support you, what would you do with it? And I told her about this vis- vision, and she was like, cool, let's do it. <laughs> so we can't, I can't strategize that kind of thing, right? Sure. My mind is really smart, and I can make a lot of things happen with my intellect, but I can't make that happen. Sure. It's in the realm of we don't know how to make climate change well, happen so you, you or actually, cure. You, you get to my next question. So I was going to ask you what keeps you up at night and what has you excited <laughs> every morning and what keeps me up at night. Like climate change is pretty serious and yeah. pretty hard to ignore. It's like in the Midwest right now, there are floods that are insane. It's just the, what we're seeing in terms of uh, drastic weather changes. It's been devastating California, the Midwest, everywhere. Yeah. So I'm just, what keeps you up at night? What has you excited every morning? Well, before I answer that, I just want to plug one of my dear friend's new books, Climate, A New Story by uh, Charles Eisenstein. And basically, Charles and I share the same cosmology of uh, kind of how do we heal? Like my work is more about how do we heal the body and his work. He's more of an environmentalist activist. How do we heal the planet? But we're wrestling with the same issues and I, I guess what keeps me up at night is, um, yeah, both the trauma of what we're experiencing. I mean, I, I feel the trauma that we've inflicted upon Gaia, the, the earth body, in my own body. I, as a mystic, this is one of my vulnerabilities. I feel the oneness of things. I feel it personally. I'm actually literally having to work with my therapist to create psychic boundaries because sometimes it's more than I can cope with. I love that you just said that. (laughs) 
I have to work with my therapist to create psychic boundaries. I know. If that's, you, that's the next level therapy. I you, love it. If you told, well, again, my therapist is a former Princeton professor, uh, PhD, Jungian psychologist, 30 year Sufi mystic energy healer. Like, that's the level of therapy I need these days to, uh, to be able to understand what's. Who what, is this person? <laughs> her name is Asha Clinton. Okay. She's an unbelievable woman who she created right advanced in integrative therapy. She's, uh, she's in. Uh, in the Northeast. Okay, I'll have to check. We're her teaching out. together in, in oh, April. Are? We're teaching well, doctors. I'd love to connect with her. Yeah, sounds I'll like someone you. up our up our alley. Yes, yes, because we are connected. We are connected to each other. We're connected to the earth. We can't traumatize entire species going extinct, losing our biodiversity, like harming our waters, harming our atmosphere. We can't do that without it affecting us. I think climate change is part of showing us that we are not the lords and masters of the entire universe. We are vulnerable. Just the same way every other species is vulnerable and our arrogance has gotten us in a lot of trouble. Our technology has gotten us in a lot of trouble. And yes, technology is great. I like to think of technology as like the human playground. Our minds are so smart. We want to figure out what we can control. And I'm the same way. I have that smart mind and I want to be able to hack healing and create the technology to cure all disease, the panacea, right? Of course I want that. And we've created technologies we don't have the wisdom to know how to use. I, I came upon that way back when I was practicing medicine, where we, were, we had the ability to offer all this genetic testing to pregnant women. And I started thinking, gosh, are we going to someday be able to say, well, you can have an amniocentesis, and we can test your baby for every sure. possible genetic vulnerability, and you can terminate every pregnancy that isn't perfect. It turns into Gattaca. It does. Yeah. So it's quite frightening. But I think, so, so like I said, it, what keeps me up at night is the trauma, but I have a lot of hope. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, maybe it's, it's false hope. Maybe really what I'm here to do is to help midwife. I'm, a, I'm an OBGYN. Maybe I'm here to help midwife the death of a dying species. And that's, that's not a bad calling. I'd be willing to sort of be one of those death midwives for a, a species. But... I, I'm attached to our species. Like Me too. Yeah. Let's keep us around. I would for a like while. to keep us around. But I think <laughs> it's the same conversation. It's the same conversation. Like saving our species to, this is part of why I want to get all these healers together at Eslin. Because if we can hack what what happens in the physical body, can we hack what's happening in the earth body? Can we use our intelligence and our heart energy and our spiritual power? to influence the consciousness of the planet. Because this is the consciousness we're talking about here. This is, uh, if we boil it all down, we're talking, we're, we're at the realm of consciousness and there are all kinds of reorganizations of quote unquote consensus reality that are possible when you're in the realm of consciousness. And that's where things start to get pretty esoteric and that. mystical. I love that. So last question, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice during that dark night of the soul in your 30s, what advice would that be? Well, I'm convinced that I kind of did. Like, the, the, the me that is not my parts, the me that I call my inner pilot light or myself, right? It was what said when I was on the floor of the bathroom ready to kill myself, but unwilling to do it because I actually had a baby inside of me and I wasn't willing to kill her. That was the part that said, sweetheart, you're going to have to quit your job. Like sometimes I wonder if, you know, if you, if you start looking at the mystical world where 
things like time and space collapse and it's sort yes we have three-dimensional reality and things like time and space are are real and and yet we also have from uh, from what we know from the mystics and the quantum physicists there are things that collapse those dualities that m- maybe me now did go back to me then and say trust this journey I, but I think again going back to the uncertainty had I been shown then what my life would be now which is quite I, I love my life and it's a life my body loves I'm not taking any medications I'm not sick had I known then had I been shown the whole picture I probably would have my mind probably would have thought I could make it better and I might have even sabotaged it but it was very clear to me that uh, I would be given one breadcrumb at a time and if I had the courage to just follow the next breadcrumb that I could tr- there was something I could trust and it wasn't something I could control, but it was something, so I like to joke because I, I have a scientific mind that I used to have blind trust and now I have evidence-based trust. But yeah, it's something in me then knew, I, I would tell people at the time and everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody thought I was having a nervous breakdown and I just needed to like go buy a Ferrari and have an affair like everybody else when they <laughs> had a midlife crisis. But- You were in, buy a Tesla. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it. right? <laughs> Right, so uh, some part of me knew that I would land better side up. And maybe it was, like I said, uh, just exuberant, youthful optimism. But I, I still have that same exuberant, youthful optimism when it comes to the state of our species and the possibility for anybody that's listening who's wrestling with a chronic illness or a disability or healing trauma. Like, I really do believe that the, if we're willing to lean into uncertainty and trust the flow of the mystery that there's it opens a portal to potentiality and to me the inner pilot light is the gateway it's like dialing the radio dial to a certain frequency where that kind of guidance that will show you where that path lives for you it's very individualized but it's very exciting amen to that let's close (laughs) on that note dr Alyssa rankin thanks so much for being here thank you so much thanks guys